Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. Here on Well, 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 Jack and Michael are with you and we've traded a Cal Hawk for Chris Williams. Hello. Hi, how are you going? Doing all right. Uh, you two went to the Sunshine Coast recently. The not-so-Sunshine Coast. The, sun- <laughs> the, 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 moon, the Moonlight Coast. The Moonlight Coast. It was quite <laughs> overcast. We were, I feel robbed, I feel gooped, I feel gagged. Lied to that we were going to the Sunshine Coast. And oh, look, we were inside all day anyway. We were inside all day anyway. Yes. It didn't make it. We were fortunate enough to escape Melbourne very briefly, head up to the Sunshine Coast to uh, the ASHAM Conference, which is the Australasian Society for HIV and Hepatitis Medicines. Have I got that acronym right? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, the Australasian Society for Viral Hepatitis, HIV and Sexual Health Medicines. That's it. Yes. Which there is, we go. It's a, it's a bit of a wordy acronym. It's She's more mouthy. than ASHAM might, uh, I guess, suggest. Um, so the ASHAM Conference, is this... This is not the first conference either of you have been to, I imagine. You've been to Ashen conferences in the past? We have. This has been the first conference in a couple of years that has been held physically in the physical realm, which has, been, which has been nice. Mm. Uh, the Ashen conference has been ongoing um, through COVID, but in a digital capacity. Mm. So it was very nice to get to mingle and network and actually see people presenting on their chosen topics in, in person. It was absolutely wonderful. Cool. Mm. Um, I guess... Uh, and also... I'm trying to remember if I'm crossing the wires, whether this is an international AIDS conference or ASHAM thing. There is like this version of ASHAM, but then is there a clinical or medical version of ASHAM that runs on the off year or something to that extent? Uh, so the the ASHAM conference is um, sexual health and HIV mushed together and they kind of run right. concurrently. Yep. Um, there is also IAS, which is the International AIDS Society that has an HIV clinical research ah. uh, conference that happens... Um, that moves around the globe. So and that's in that's Brisbane global. next year, I think. Which is in Brisbane next year, which we kind of merged with this conference that we have just attended. So Fantastic. the um, ASHAM conference won't technically happen. It'll be part of the IAS conference in ah. Brisbane. Who attends? I mean, obviously, health promotion, health communication uh, is a big part of the work that we do. Yeah. Um, who else do you see at something like ASHAM Conference? It's really diverse. There's a lot of different presentations from people working in research that present on everything from HIV, stigma, to um, STI rates, um, just queer stuff. Yep. Um, but people access it from all, all walks of HIV and sexual health. So mm. nurses, doctors, people like myself and Chris that work in health promotion, that work kind of on the ground, um, translating some of that research into usable data that we can then Mm. merge into Mm. campaigns to provide that information back to community in a really sensible way. Yeah, so it really ranges from, you know, the, the, the Australia's top scientists in, in the HIV field to, to government policymakers to community advocates. So mm. it's, it's this really rich and kind of incredible boiling pot to, you know, to have that experience of going there and, and knowing that you're among the top people in their sector. It's, it's pretty enlivening. Yeah, we had um, representation from um, 
even though it is the Australasian mm. Sexual Health Conference, there were guest speakers from Yale. There was um, a couple of people speaking about the HIV epidemic in places like Alabama. Um, there was representation from the World Health, World Health Organization um, that were visiting, which was absolutely fantastic. Very rich. What's it like to have, I guess, walk me through that translation, I guess, because if you're having doctors, nurses, researchers there, they're used to using fairly technical language, I imagine. And so to, to kind of put that into action with community and kind of, um, I don't want to say make it more usable, because obviously mm. the, the, those are the tools of their trade. But what does that look like on your end, trying to bridge the gap between clinical um, and, and community? Some of the sessions were really, um, really digestible that you like, right, I, I understand all of this and I can take this in my day-to-day practice, especially, so there are kind of different streams happening. So there's really, mm. you know, heavy clinical stuff. And then there's more um, social, um, social engagement, mm. social determinants of health, community development, advocacy, policy that's, you know, quite digestible. But there were a few sessions that Chris and I both attended that were on, you know, really heavy HIV cure research and using really, you know, broad broad terms and acronyms that we were like, whoa, this is this is a lot to take in. So it really depends on the kind of area of work that you're in and you can kind of navigate the space based on what you're going to get the most out of it. So we did a lot of the social, political advocacy mm. kind of um, sessions that were, you know, sex work decriminalization and porn for young people, prep access. Um, but we did kind of dip our toes into some of the more heavy clinical stuff, which was mind blowing, but also it was very fast paced and <laughs> a, a lot to keep up with when you are, you know, we're not idiots, but we work in health promotion. We don't work in clinical research. So yeah, there were a few barriers to, to some of the sessions. I feel like I need a crash course in statistics sometimes <laughs> to, to understand yep. you know, the, the meaning of this, but I've got better with looking at things like, like p-values and p-numbers on, on, mm. on, a, on a presentation and going, oh, I think I understand what this means and what's statistically significant <laughs> in, in this presentation. Mm. Um, usually the researchers are very good at kind of you know, helping condense that, and I think the conference this year has really adopted, or it, it, kind of, it, it emerged that it adopted a kind of a, uh, the very final slide of a presentation was really a community presentation slide that mm. was, what does this research mean on a single page mm. in language? That, that anybody can understand and that really kind of helped condense it down to, to you know to us lay people I think if, if you will yep. to understand what does this research really mean in context yeah um, you said earlier Michael that it, it has run online for the last few years what difference does it make having a physical space for people to come together and work together mm. have that that sense of connection but do you feel like it I guess, pushes the discussion forward in that way? Absolutely. We, uh, and I think this, this was kind of a vibe throughout most of the conference that we heard kind of reiterated from a number of different people was it's fantastic to go into these sessions and listen to someone kind of formally present, but it was equally as valuable to see some of those presentations and go, when that person's grabbing a sandwich later in the <laughs> in the cafeteria area, I'm going to go up and ask them a question about something. Mm. Well, that, that intrinsically relates to the work that I do or... This person is doing a project completely similarly to mine in another jurisdiction. Mm. And there's this wealth of knowledge that can mm. be shared. And you can just go up and, you know, either physically or, or mentally to tap them on the shoulder and go, hey, it's great to meet you. I loved your presentation. I would love to swap emails and, and talk about things. That just, it's, it's harder for that to happen in a digital space. Mm. But um, we did that. We did, but we did, we did, we did <laughs> we do that. We absolutely did that. Um, yeah, in a physical realm, it was great to just mingle mm. and network and be able to share experiences and, and even pro- promote the work that we do day to day and that our organization does mm. um, across different state lines and even internationally. It was really, really valuable. I've certainly hesitated, I think, 
you know, when I've been in online conferences to, to reach out to somebody who, you know, is a very, you know, senior researcher, senior, senior government advisor and go, well, is, is it okay that I kind of engage this person yeah. when it's not face to face? Whereas that's really broken down and there is a level of kind of, well, we're all here we're together. All the same in the yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 We had someone that was, you know, worked in the upper levels of New South Wales ministry and we we're like, hi, can I pick your brain about something? No. Someone you would never approach. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, either via email or just pick up the phone and call, but because something they were presenting on spoke to us as kind of advocates, we were like, actually, we've got this piece of information to impart. Is this valuable to you? We ended up having a mm. great kind of hour-long discussion about you know prep and advocacy mm. and... Um, yeah, it was really wonderful. The kind of things you can't you can't really foster that in, unless it's coordinated in, in, yeah. a, in an online conference session. You kind of make breakout rooms to encourage people, but that organic conversation, I don't think it really comes through in the same way that it does in real life. Mm. Chris, I, I guess you've kind of poked your head into well, well, well a little bit over the last mm. few weeks and months, but for people who aren't familiar before we get into some of the digital engagement strategies that you kind of um, navigated while you were at Ashram... Um, you know, what is Emanate and what do you do with mm. Emanate? Sure. Uh, so I'm the uh, project lead for, for Emanate uh, and, and I'm based at Thorn Harbour Health. Um, but the Emanate project is a partnership between ACON and Thorn Harbour Health. And both these organisations are involved in, in the production of, of Emanate. Uh, we exist in digital environments. And so we are ultimately an HIV and sexual health education project. That, that's kind of our, our core work. Mm. But we don't really lead with that. And when we're kind of talking to, to the community, the, the project really is, uh, it, it appears to community as, as a website and a social media presence and we try to engage same-sex attracted men across all of Australia with content that really appeals to where they're at in their life and recognising that things like sex and sexual health are a part of their lives but not necessarily that in entirety. So we've really kind of pioneered this notion of stealth health promotion mm. whereby that we're inter- integrating you know, examples of good sexual health behaviour and, and, in- and information topics about sexual health into other topics that we think appeal to, to the audience. That are engaging. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Uh, at Ashram, you presented a poster talking about the benefit to understanding digital engagement strategies. We have these conversations at work quite mm. a lot, but I, I guess specifically around search engine optimization, um, for you know people listening who aren't really digitally savvy, um, and I know that we've had our computer problems on the, on the way here, um, <laughs> what were some of the takeaways, I guess, um, we should understand when we're making digital content for health promotion? Uh, I mean, what well, great question. Uh, so I guess the you know the, the what you're relating to there is some of the, the research that, that we've done and that mm. we, we presented at the conference, um, which was really our findings recently in the in the Emanate project of the successes that we've had uh, by investing in um, search engine optimization. That was the, the term you used. So that's that's really the notion that you know as as a as a somebody that's just on the, on the web and you know you want to go and find something, yep. you'll usually use a search engine such as Google, for example, and you'll type something into Google mm. and hopefully it's going to, to give you something thing in the search results that, that match what, what your search intention is. So, you know, you want to know about symptoms of chlamydia, for example, mm. you're going to get pages that hopefully are going to come back and give, give you exactly what you want to know. Um, what, what really search engine optimization is all about is making sure that we are fine-tuning our website content and the structure of our website and, and uh, itself to be able to really match, match up with what people want to, to search for online, mm. what they're searching for, and also that our content is, is then friendly to something like Google. Google's algorithms. Yes. So that means that we can actually match our content up with people that are searching for that information. And so that's really the kind of, it's, it's a bit science and it's a bit art in the middle to make sure that the words on the page and the structure of the website really matches that and is, is, is Google friendly fundamentally. Mm. And you were talking about the importance of that in the realm of, you know, the website being for your project specifically, um, one of the kind of cornerstones of the delivery of the, the content that you create and your reliance on other platforms like Facebook, Mm. where we've had experiences before where, and you mentioned this in your poster, 
it, it has, um, because of the change in the way the platform mm. works, it has kind of disabled your ability to directly target mm. people that are interested in LGBTI friendly topics which limits your ability to engage with them yeah. and then also what we experienced in australia where we just woke up one day and we didn't have access to news on social <laughs> media oh god and what that meant for you know queer news organizations and uh, exactly you would have right. lost it that day well i mean yeah we were very fortunate that, that we weren't well, that the m project was unaffected by that in particular mm. but we certainly know other organizations and media organizations that very much were affected by yeah. that and it was also in the middle i think of, of one of uh, victoria's lockdowns which was particularly possibly out there other uh, jurisdictions as well um, but but not a great time not a great no. time Facebook and you know it, particularly in response to that we, we very much wanted to diversify our digital media strategies because we recognize that we need to get content to where people are at in their lives now mm. and you know certainly as as organizations like Acorn of Thorn Harbor we've come from a long legacy of you know 40 years of, of dealing with the HIV epidemic mm. and and also then navigating how technology and, and our audience has changed over that time um, you know gay venues still exist but in some places they're not as strong or as frequented as they used to be. So yeah. we have to find new ways of how we're going to get information to the audience. And we're constantly innovating and evolving those strategies and approaches. Because mm. originally, in the, the beginning of the, the um, AIDS and HIV uh, epidemic here in Australia, we would have been you know, reliant on non-internet-based strategies because mm. it didn't exist. We were out at bars and clubs and putting posters up on the backs of toilet doors, which are strategies we still implement today. Mm. But the work that you do is really about mm. um, leveraging our digital natives exactly. to, um, to access that same information and how vital mm -hmm. structuring your website is to make sure that when you are looking up you know, Emanate's articles on how to cruise safely or how to pick the best lubricants that you're not ending up on someone that sells flat screen TVs. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And also reaching part, parts of the community that have been difficult to reach before, where if mm. you speak about... Um, uh, I'm trying to uh, rem remember how you say it, Michael. It's like men who have sex with men that don't necessarily identify as gay or bisexual. Uh, yeah, generally heterosexually identified men yes. who have sex with men or just men who have sex with men that don't have a queer identity. But if really. you know, on Google searching for the mm. same things that you know, any other gay, mm. bisexual, or other men who have sex with men are searching for, they'll end up coming across your article where they wouldn't necessarily come across something on the back of a toilet's, you know, store at the lead or something. So, And, and that's our aim with that, with that search engine optimization is to be able to get that content to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about Poscol because I don't know what that is on my page right now. Yeah. So <laughs> we, uh, we were fortunate enough to, there were some really amazing poster presentations, one of which was, was um, Chris's during yep. the conference. So for someone that hasn't been to one of those kinds of conferences, you go in and there's panel discussions and mm. there's people get up with slides and do presentations. But also while you're kind of having lunch or where there's tours going on, people put their content onto posters, big giant posters, and then talk about them. Yeah. Um, to kind of deliver their content in a in a rapid fire kind of situation, um, uh, Queensland Positive People were one of the organisations that kind of put themselves forward to um, very um, very openly did a piece of research that was about the quality of life of people accessing their services that are people living with HIV. Mm. Um, and so through their services, we're delivering a um, a POSQUAL, so a people living with HIV quality of life survey. Right. Um, and so that was basically a self reported assessment of not just HIV being, you know, okay, you're on treatment and you've um, gotten to having an undetectable viral load, so therefore everything's a okay. Yep. There's a lot more complex things that might be going on for your health and well-being, your housing situation, your diet, your employment, all those sorts of things that contribute to your quality of the life. The social determinants. Yeah, yeah, and what that found was that people that had a lower quality of life through that self-assessment tool were less inclined to engage with mm. 
Queensland Positive People's yep. services. Um, and so that was really talking about how we can use these specific surveys to better understand holistically people's well-being and how we as organisations, so Thorn Harbour Health, for example, or Queensland Positive People in, in this particular instance, can then better improve their services to um, reach those people and to fill gaps where where we have for people living with HIV. I just th thought that was really wonderful. Um, and for them to basically put forward to say, here are the areas we are lacking and here is why we use this tool to find those areas we're lacking so that we can improve them was really, um, you know, it can be a very vulnerable position to put yourself in as an organisation servicing your community. What were some of those, I guess, opportunities for improvement to be able to retain um, people living with HIV mm. as far as like service delivery goes. Yeah, those were in their particular survey, it was really about um, peer support services. There yep. was a real need for um, or a desire for those people to access peer-led services. So yep. peer navigation programs, peer-led support groups and those sorts of things. So that's I believe that's going to be reflected in their service delivery kind of moving forward that they've recognised that that's an area that they would like to really start to excel in. Speaking about the Ashram Conference in the Sunshine Coast, where thankfully Michael and Chris weren't shanked, but you we could have shanked. been. We weren't shanked. <laughs> um, we were, <laughs> for context, we, were, we, were, we left everything to the last minute because of who we are as people. Uh, and we, <laughs> yes. we're in a, the Sunshine Coast, for those unfamiliar, is I'd never been before. It's, it's a relatively kind of, kind of small coastal town, really. It is. Well, the bit um, we were in was. That we were, yeah. the, we were the not in the main we bit. Were in. We weren't yeah. in the main bit. Um, the uh, conference centre could not host everyone for accommodation. So we were staying somewhat it out of the so main drag. so far away from everything. We were staying outside of the main drag, but we, you know, we had a very comfortable accommodation, but we had to rely on taxis and Ubers to get us back yep. and forth to the conference every day. And being the people that we are, very heavily involved in kind of networking with people working in the same position, we networked a little bit too late one evening. Yes. And realised that there were no Ubers or taxis running. And so <laughs> we had to walk in the dead of night, many, many several kilometres down the coastal highway. And I believe it was a new moon or there was there was a sliver of moon oh. with no street lights walked in the dead of darkness it was very lantana it was very wolf creek um and we were nearly attacked by bush turkeys in the middle of um the sunshine coast is that actually so, true that it, there were bush turkeys yeah oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they were wandering around the conference yeah. center <laughs> in the day very innocuous eating people's spare scraps of food delightful but when they were rustling in the bushes while we thought we were going to be attacked by you know Wolves, yeah. vampires, yeah. Yeah. assorted. The people from the hills have eyes. Um, <laughs> thankfully, that did not happen. So we were we had some very um, some fit calf muscles by the by the we end did. of the conference. We did. Yes. We got we got our daily exercise. We in did get day. our daily exercise. Goodness. Um, before I get into um, I guess injectable prep because that's a topic mm. that we've been keen to discuss on the show for many months. Um, there was data presented at the Prepare Project about uh, talking about prep users and their willingness to rely on U equals U as a strategy. Um, the, my understanding from your perspective was quite striking. Do you want to speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, we we uh, you can speak to this as well, Chris. We were fortunate enough to listen to a presentation provided through some research that came out of the Prepare Project, which was looking at um, the lives and experiences of people using PrEP as a strategy for prevention of HIV. Um, and we were both kind of, we felt a bit kind of like smacked in the face mm. by this research that was presented. And it was about... People um, using PrEP and their willingness to adopt U equals U or undetectable equaling untransmittable as a strategy. So if, what that research found was that people's awareness of U equals U as a strategy, so people that have an undetectable viral load cannot transmit HIV to another person. Mm. People using PrEP were 
perhaps aware of U equals U, but weren't willing to rely on it as a strategy, which is a which is a huge piece of kind of. Uh, social entanglement that we really want to understand better. Well, I think it goes further than that because it mm. wasn't just a reliance on you, it was you. This was PrEP users who also have a reliance on their own PrEP. So we have this kind of double whammy situation mm. where the research was really uncovering that there is a seemingly a significant amount of PrEP users who are using PrEP and, you know, obviously PrEP protects against HIV and they were unwilling to, to have sex with somebody living with HIV who had an undetectable viral load. So therefore we have this kind of double gloved situation mm. going on in reality where we know that the, the PrEP user is protected because of their PrEP, but they're also protected because of the other person's undetectable viral load. So we have possibly the safest possible combination you can imagine when it comes to the lack of HIV transmission that could happen in the scenario, but yet there was still cultural unwillingness around this. And that was really fascinating for us to kind of unpack and go, well, what really what is that contributing mean? that? Yeah, yeah. What, what are the, why, why might some PrEP users be comfortable and other PrEP users not? Well, mm. What's that about? I imagine much of it would come down to stigma. I, that's a very easy, I think, I, an, an easy answer to that. It's a case of yes, Much of it would, yeah. possibly, but but ultimately, how do we how do we really get underneath the bonnet of what that stigma mm. is? Well, it, I mean, and I don't want to. It sounds like it's very easy to say that it's stigma. Also, is is it information and knowledge? Is it just a lack it of understanding? It could be a misunderstanding, absolutely. And, and mm. that's a case of you know, it's it's just you know an, an unknown. And stigma fundamentally is the fear of the unknown. Yes. Yeah. So it's a case of you know what 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 is the situation here? And I think it really is is an interesting area that I, I for one would like to see a lot more research in the space to understand well what correlates are there for example between people that you know on prep that that are happy to engage versus mm. people that aren't happy to engage and what kind of social or cultural interventions might, might we put in place to kind of to change all of that because ultimately this is tied down to the quality of life for for people living with hiv i mean yep. no, nobody likes to feel rejection no um, least of all people living with hiv so that's ultimately a a thing i think that we're looking at for social good and also prep users you can be having more sex than you're having. <laughs> yeah, and that was my takeaway. It's like your from quality a purely, of life too. <laughs> from a purely selfish point of view, like to, to not understand yeah. that your your prep works or that the person living with HIV can't transmit the virus mm. because they're undetectable. It's like you're actually cutting the network of people that yeah. you could be having some amazing fun sex with um, down by all of those people. So yeah. you're doing yourself a disservice. But it was interesting that the the research was about someone's willingness to have sex with that person. It wasn't about whether they it was only partially about whether they understood that HIV couldn't be transmitted. So it was about their willingness to mm. engage with sex with that person. So it, mm. it goes beyond perhaps HIV transmission and mm. what HIV for that person mm. means for the HIV negative partner. So it was about the person just not wanting to physically engage in sex with them, mm. regardless of whether they understood that HIV couldn't be transmitted. So a really complex, yeah. uh, murky situation. And, but it's also not, I guess, I mean, we've, we've seen some of this in an Australian context, and it was really, really great to see research you know, presented on this basis. But I think anecdotally, we've seen things like the PrEP for PrEP movement over, over in yep. the United States and the UK. It's, yep. a face of, it, it's a case of, you know, a different kind of serosorting was happening, whereby PrEP users seeking out other PrEP users mm. to have sex with. And I can understand that from mm. a, you know, a pleasure perspective, the possibility of perhaps condomless sex, if that's a desirable feature yep. in there. Mm. Also, it's a case of, you know, PrEP users generally have, have that kind of level of reassurance that they're having sex with somebody who is also engaged in their own healthcare. And maybe it's it's a case of, you know, with, with you know, obviously PrEP requiring going for sexual health tests yes. every three months. Mm. Uh, and maybe that's part of, you know, the extra narrative that we need to be looking at. It's a case of, well, people living with HIV are also very, very engaged in their healthcare. Yeah. You know, they're, they're taking medication to make sure that they, they are, they're staying undetectable for their own benefit. Benefit, mm. And there's a secondary benefit that it's also going to be protecting you as well. Mm. 
we could speak about this at length for I feel like a fair bit longer, could, yeah. um, but we, we can't quite do that because I want to move on to injectable prep. Um, mm. I, I guess there, there was a panel at Asham on injectable prep. Um, what is it and how does it work? Who is she? What's going on? <laughs> Let's have a conversation about it. So most people familiar with PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, would know it as either a daily pill or a pill that you take um, with specific time doses, so on-demand PrEP, that you would take to, as an HIV-negative person to prevent you acquiring HIV. Mm. So if the person has a detectable viral load, if you take PrEP, you won't, you'll be protected from the virus. Yep. Um, there is new research and evidence going on for both treatment and for prevention that would not rely on an oral pill either every day or whenever you need it, um, that would rely on an injection of a similar medication mm. that would be long acting injectable medication. So rather than taking the daily pill, you would be taking, uh, using an injection every two, every six months. Um, and the benefits to that um, were many and varied um, and also very complex. So this panel was really interesting that I was um, fortunate to get to speak on, but it really untangled the complexities around uh, getting a medication kind of, you know, approved and listed to make sure that we know that it's safe and that it's accessible. And because it's not approved it. yet in Australia, is it? Not for prevention. Well, I mean, well. We, we have, we have um, it, is, it is available approved under the TGA. Yes. So that's the... the, the um, Therapeutic Therapeutics Administration. Thank you, that's the that's one. That's the one. Um, acronyms. Um, mm. However, it's, from a PrEP perspective, it's not necessarily yet available on the PBS, which is, you know, the mechanism that we need to make it you know, affordable. affordable and yep. easy, easily yep. accessible. So we have at least that TGA approval but the PBS is a separate approval process and that was mm. some of the nuance that came out in this session it's a case of well how difficult easy is it to get onto the PBS mm. and that is a potential yet to be seen when it comes to PrEP my understanding is that treatment mm. however injectable treatment is currently available is listed um, I think yeah. there are some eligibility criteria considerations yep. for that and, and obviously mm. it's always going to be a discussion with between the doctor and the patient to kind of go is this right for you yep. but I think we have availability of that now yeah because even for approvals was a was a complex situation that we faced when we were looking to get um, oral prep mm. um, because the and some people might not know this if you're a, a person looking to access a medication and it's not PBS approved uh, or listed so that it's subsidized so that it's affordable under under Medicare there's nothing that you can kind of do about that yeah it's up to the manufacturer of that particular drug to put forward the case and then to pay a specific fee to have it assessed um, and that can be quite cumbersome if you're you know a small generic medication provider mm -hmm. um, it can be quite cost prohibitive to put that forward and you have to do a lot of modeling to say that this will mm. improve the quality of life or it will be cheaper or mm. it will be more accessible it will provide some net benefit to the mm. population and obviously you know budgetarily, yep. it will provide some form of protection. And, and that's also a really good process, I think, that, that Australia mm. has. We, we learned a lot about that. It's a case of we have some strong controls here that make sure that, um, you know, shifty pharmaceutical companies aren't, aren't necessarily coming into the space and trying to push products into the Australian market that are kind of new and improved and better than before when actually maybe they're not they're and not. they're just more expensive, mm. which is, you know, based upon the United States healthcare model, yes. we have a very different situation mm. going over there. So we have really good safeguards in Australia that kind of shield us from from some of that, some mm. of that hoo-ha. But then thinking practically about, um, you know, using an injectable, long-acting injectable prep versus, you know, oral daily prep, there were a couple of studies that were done that showed that it would have perhaps an increased safety profile. So there's a very small number of people for whom oral prep um, isn't suitable because it might um, cause um, adverse reactions. Right. Um, for the vast majority of people, it's very... Um, 
very safe and very easy to take long term. Mm, yep. But for a very small number of people that have, you know, renal function issues, so issues with your kidneys, it might not be as, yeah, right. as usable. If you have um, uh, already decreased bone density, it might be a might be a factor, might be an issue. Um, and so it was potentially posited as having an increased safety profile, so less adverse reactions right. from taking it, um, and potentially harder to do things like miss doses. So if you're someone yes. that forgets to take your prep, um, which is incredibly important if you're using on-demand prep with those mm. carefully timed doses of when you need to take it. Yep. Um, if you're someone that kind of misses doses every now and then, you're a little bit you know forgetful like I am, mm. um, you might want to think about this other strategy that goes, oh, well, I can just pop down to my sexual health clinic, get, get all my tests done, get a little jab in the arm, and away I go, and I don't have to worry about keeping my prep in my medicine cabinet. Yeah. And I imagine a, a, a good chunk of that around who does this work for? Like, who is this um, injectable prep for? Um, and specifically, who would benefit from it goes into that cost-benefit analysis situation. And that's part mm. of the reason I imagine at this point why it's not on the PBS yet, because they're still yeah. in the process, the manufacturer, I imagine, would still be in the process of trying to make the case that mm. there is a, a that it should value be subsidized. proposition. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things I was talking about in my my panel presentation was, you know, we have oral prep and it's publicly subsidized. You can also access generics relatively affordably from overseas. Mm. Um, we already have this great mechanism that works. Will us bringing in this new system just take people that are already accessing highly effective oral prep and be putting them onto a new, also equally effective strategy? So will we effectively be proposing Malibu Stacy with a new hat to provide a Simpsons reference for those people who are in that community. <laughs> uh, I need to give Michael snaps for that because that was a highlight of the conference to seeing Michael present Malibu Stacy on screen. On an official to, to slide. a room full of, of government conference. officials and, and scientists. Yeah. yeah. So to, yeah, to, to bring in that analogy, like are we, will there be a quote-unquote net protection benefit? Will yes. we increase the amount of people that are protected from HIV? Will um, Or will we just have, you know, PrEP users that are already taking PrEP onto a new strategy, which, mm. you know, might provide them with um, additional sense of security, security, accessibility, adherence, which are all great things, but will we see a redux reduction in HIV from this? And I think that's a really important thing to factor in. Mm. From the community perspective, because my understanding is that's where you, you came in with your uh, part of this presentation, I guess. Um, do you feel like there is going to be a net increase in prevention of HIV through something like long-acting injectable PrEP? I think we need to do a lot more community research to, to really un better understand that. And mm. I think there's a lot of it going on. Um, uh, the Kirby Institute is doing some of that research. I believe Melbourne Sexual Health Centre is doing some of that research to kind of better understand, okay, you as a community, as someone uh, eligible for PrEP or using PrEP, what would this mean for you? Um, and what might... What might allow you to opt into this strategy because mm. there have been some instances um, at least globally of uh, people acquiring HIV that have a history of PrEP use so either not taking it and, and adhering to the medication or have stopped using it because they feel like they're not at risk or it's too much of a hassle then, it's too expensive yep. and then acquiring HIV so there there are definitely routes of or niches of community that I mm. think this is probably going to work for but it's going to be really interesting to see some of that community research kind of unfold as to who this might um benefit but we can make some speculations you know people that are in you know unsafe familial settings mm. um people that don't want to be outed by carrying around a medication that's easily searchable that this is an hiv either treatment or prevention medication um those communities we were talking about earlier heterosexually identified men who have sex with men that don't want to carry rare prep around with them um this also seemed to be um uh, uh, have an increased safety profile for um for women, both cis and trans women, um, and what that would mean for protecting those communities. Mm. Um, 
and people that the other consideration is people that can't access Medicare. So this is obviously going to mm. be a Medicare listed medication eventually. Mm. Um, at the moment, we can access prep from overseas. So if you don't have Medicare, you can buy relatively affordable prep from overseas. For this injectable might not be prep, the case. you probably it would be very impractical to import a medication that needs to be administered via an injection. How expensive is it? Or is it the, pra- the practicality of administration that Probably concern? the practicality ah, okay. of administration right. with, and the, the shipping and whether it needs to be temperature controlled and yeah, all those kind true. of things that, that aren't true of an oral medication that you can then just take simply mm. yourself. We are rapidly running out of time. I guess, is mm. there anything on injectable prep or injectable HIV treatment um, that we haven't quite touched on yet? Um, I mean, Chris has touched on it that we do have a listed um, subsidised... Uh, treatment options. So for some people living with HIV, Cabinuva is mm. is an option, um, which I believe I, I know a few people in my network that have kind of rolled onto it as kind of a almost like a self experiment for them. Like, what will this mean for me? Mm. I know that it works, mm. but practically, what's this kind of going to mean for me taking this new drug? Mm. And I, I guess that could be quite an interesting headspace as well. It's a case mm. of if you're used to taking daily medication or, or on that daily basis, what does it mean to put your faith in something that's now a long, long-acting injectable? Yeah. It's a case of, you know, is it still working? I haven't done anything today. Whereas, you know, you take your pill every day, you know, you know that you're doing something. You're mm. kind of in control of that. Yeah. Um, so that might be an interesting headspace to kind of navigate as well. I, I guess the biggest takeaway for me is, is that while we, we kind of, we don't yet know exactly how the injectables, long-acting injectables, certainly PrEP is, is going to unfold, and e- even, you know, treatment to a degree. Mm. I think from a scientific advancement perspective, it is really, really cool. It's amazing that we're now in this space where we've been able to get, obviously, PrEP was in the last few few years, effectively. It's yep. become popularized. It's been around for over a decade mm. now, mm. but really popularized in the last few years. And we're now starting to see kind of like the next, you know, PrEP 2.0s coming out. Michael alluded to earlier, there's already a six-month injectable um, solution in the pipeline, yep. possibly also a subdermal implant, mm. uh, much like the contraceptive implants, mm. implants that, that um, people who can like get the pregnant. bar, yeah, yep. exactly. So for those people that have to potentially travel like into a, a city or an urban center to mm. get their prep every three months, mm. if there's a six month option mm. available, that might be quite interesting for those people that make the effort to travel in to access their mm. HIV prevention to make it more accessible for them. I think it's sometimes we don't always see you know huge advances in the HIV space. That sometimes it can take a long, long time. Yeah. Certainly with forty years of the epidemic for there to be new advances, but we're seeing really tangible cool new stuff coming out now that is absolutely going to have an effect and is just re- really a reflection of, of where we're at with the science and so going to a conference like ASHEN where we get to intermingle with the scientists that are driving this driving the science behind it, the implementation that's a real honor and a privilege and it's a really special space to be in we're going to have to wrap up the show pretty much now. Um, very quickly, where can people go to read Emanate, Chris? Uh, www.emanate.com.eu that's spelled E-M-E-N-8 Stunning and gorgeous. Uh, check out Thorn Harbor on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Thorn Harbor uh, for any updates around, especially the monkeypox vaccine clinics mm-hmm. um, that may or may not be popping up at a clinic near you soon. Um, probably St. Uh But that is it for the show this week. Uh, if you want to listen to more from uh, Well, 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 uh, joy.org.au slash Well, Well is where you want to go to listen to previous podcasts. Michael and Chris, thank you for joining me. It has been an absolute delight and pleasure. Thank you. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being. Presented by Joy sponsor, Thorn Harbour Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website, thornharbour.org. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. 
go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. 